Welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm Zoe. And I'm Kelsey. And we're back to talk about more Maiden Lane today. Oh yeah, I'm working on this Maiden Lane thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and I'm hopeful that uh, by the time we get to the end of this podcast, we will have more positive thoughts and feelings about this book. But this was a reread for me, and it definitely was different than I remember. So I'm super excited for our discussion today. Excellent. I can tell you this right up the front. I did not hate it like I hated the first one. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Well, I expected that. And I'm glad that uh, I was right because I never want us to read things that we really don't enjoy. I think that it's fun occasionally to read books that either, you know, somehow you, you just feel a little bit disconnected with or frustrated with because it makes you think differently. But it's not Mm -hmm. fun to do it for 14 books. (laughs) No, yeah. No, it's definitely one thing to push yourself out of your comfort zone and be like, okay, I did that. I experienced that. Not as good. Not Mm -hmm. like I don't really want to do it again. But, you know, at least you tried. But Mm -hmm. I'm happy that this had more things going for it. (laughs) Excellent. And the book we are talking about today is Notorious Pleasures by Elizabeth Hoyt, which is number two in her Maiden Lane series. Yes. So we've got a couple fun things for us to go over first. Now, number one, Zoe, I thought of you when I found this. I wanted to – sometimes, you know, we don't do an author fact in a series, but I found this on her website, and it was a frequently asked question. And so, Zoe, why don't you read it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So at the beginning of all of the chapters in this series, there's like a little excerpt from a fairy tale. Um, And there, obviously, in each book, it's a different fairy tale. And the frequently asked question is, where do the fairy tales in your books come from? And she says, I write the fairy tales in my books myself. They are often based on older fairy tales, myths or legends, though. So parts of them may sound familiar. For instance, the fairy tale in the Raven Prince, which is a different series, uh, has had two inspirations, the Greek myth of Psyche and Eros and the Princess Golden Hair and the Great Black Raven, a fairy tale by Howard Pyle in his book, The Wonder Clock, which is now out of print. And that's super cool because I actually was wondering that. I was like, are these fairy tales that are like, they're a fairy tale and she's just written it in her own words? And the answer is yes and no. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I uh, I was thinking of you <laughs> and I saw yep. this and I was like, I feel like we need to put this in there because at the very least, I'm sure this is a good answer for Zoe. <laughs> it is. Yes. And for those of you who haven't listened to every episode um, and know the deep cut is that I tend to really dislike um, kind of blurbs at the beginning of chapters. Um I think the most successful uh, blurbs are are the Lady Whistledown blurbs, um, but sometimes I find them to be distracting, and we've talked about that through our Bridgerton mm-hmm. series, um, so I don't need to hash it out again. Um, in this series, my memory is that some of the fairy tales really grabbed me, and some of them I just skipped, you know, yeah. and it, it was kind of hit or miss for me. And I think, you know, that it really just comes down to your personal preference, but we can talk about that too more in our general book discussion. Yes, we can. So for history today, I have gotten some history of gin 
in the 18th century. Because this was a huge factor in this book, as well as subsequent books. So... Yes, I was so hoping you would do this. I almost reached out to you because I have read the series and you haven't. And I wanted to be like, you might want to do something about gin. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I found this really cool website and it looks like they do a lot of alcohols. Anyway, so it's Difford's Guide is what it's called. And we will link to it in the show notes specifically to their article on the history of gin 1728 through 1794. I'm going to read a couple little passages from it, not the whole article, don't worry. But I think the ones that I found fascinating are in there. So basically, it starts with the impact of gin on London's deprived inner city population unused to anything stronger than beer has been compared to the effects of crack cocaine on modern day American inner city ghettos. The period during which gin had its greatest impact in Britain has since become known as the gin craze. So the fun news is, is there's like eight different gin acts in like a 50 year span. So that's exciting. And Mm -hmm. a lot of it has to do with, like, wars that are being fought. But then what's interesting is English grain distilling was banned in 1757. And it's because in 1757, the harvest failed and fearing a bread shortage, exports of corn and malt were banned, as was all distillation of wheat, barley, malt, or any other grain. This was intended to be a temporary measure. But when the 1758 harvest proved a little better, the ban was extended. Spirits were still being made from imported sugar molasses, but due to the high cost, production was comparatively small. And so the spirits that were available were priced beyond the reach of the poor. Sobriety prevailed and London enjoyed growing prosperity and many civil improvements to its infrastructure with the construction of new roads and the introduction of street lighting. London's standard of living rose for both rich and poor alike. The Bountiful Harvest of 1759 led distillers and farmers to lobby for distillation to be legalized. However, their demands were countered by those of moral reformers, a stronger church, and the growing middle classes who argued for out-and-out prohibition. However, the lack of availability of gin was causing rum imports to rise. And this, along with the preference of the government to earn excise duty from domestic distillers, led to a compromise. In March 1760, a bill restored corn distilling, but with double the levels of previous excise duty. So one of the things that they talk about a lot in this book is the women affected by gin. So this was 1723 to 1757, and it was called Mother's Ruin. In 1723, the death rate in London outstripped the birth rate, and it remained higher for the next decade, with as many as 75% of babies died before they reached the age of five. Gin was also blamed for lowering fertility. Women addicted to gin neglected their infants and or quieted them with gin. Babies were born deformed by fetal alcohol syndrome. Women more than men fell foul of gin, so the spirit gained a feminine identity and earned its nicknames like Lady's Delight, Mother Gin, or Madame Geneva. The term Mother's Ruin survives to this day. So that's kind of a big play in the home for unfortunate oh god, the name is so long. The home. The the home for unfortunate infants and children. The foundling there's a foundling in there I know, somewhere I wrote too. It, You're I right, wrote yeah. it out with looking at the book. But here's a fun one I thought you guys would like. So after grain distilling was allowed again, in 1777, 
Hags and Stein started exporting grain alcohol to London for rectification into gin in 1777. Much to the upset of the English distillers, this was the start of a flow of cheap quality grain alcohol from Scotland, which has grown over the centuries to the extent that what little gin is still produced in London today is more often than not made with Scottish grain alcohol. Formerly London distilled brands such as Gordon and Tanqueray are now made in Scotland, and even Beefeater, still distilled in London, is bottled in Scotland. So Scotland has a thing on whiskey, but they also are really important to the distilling of gin. <laughs> well, thank you, Scotland. I do enjoy me a nice gin and tonic As whenever do I. I'm going to go for hard, hard liquor. As do I. So these were just some fun facts about gin and this time period. If you want to read more, it definitely goes into more um, depth as far as like the acts where it was penalized and kind of where they were trying to you know, dissuade people from buying gin. But basically, it was around and it couldn't be defeated. And you know what? My taste buds are happy for it. <laughs> yes. And if you haven't read this book, um, I can also just add that, you know, uh, these books, the whole series is set in the Georgian era. I don't know how early in the 1700s. Um, I just haven't looked into that, but maybe we should do that before the next one. <laughs> do they even have dates? Um, but I don't think they have dates not, in the book at all. They just they just have wigs that I'm just aware have of. Wigs. <laughs> but as we sort of alluded to at the beginning of this history fact, um, gin is a really important theme in this book and really in this whole series, just because we are set in a poor area of London. And that was a real problem, uh, as as Kelsey shared, that the poor were facing was addiction to gin and gin being illegal and difficult to come by, but people being addicted to it. And, you know, that it's it's really interesting because it's um, – the struggles of the poor are really highlighted in all these books, which is a lot different than a lot of the Regency romances that we read. Exactly. Very true. However, moving on. It is time. Our main tropes is not about the poor and downtrodden. Our main tropes are the virgin and the rake. I would say that's mm -hmm. a good one. And also engaged to the brother. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. We're engaged to the wrong sibling. Yes. Ah. Ah, so great. <laughs> so great. And our main characters today are Lady Hero Batten and Lord Griffin Reading. And normally at this point, um, we have a little spot for any trigger warnings or content warnings, but I don't think we have any today. I don't think we have any. No. Not, not anything particular in this book. Mm -mm. So I think we should get into our synopsis, shall we? We shall. So Lord Griffin Reading is having a great time until he gets an earring thrown at him by a disapproving miss who is trying to warn him that his current paramour's husband is coming their way. Griffin is interested in this self-righteous lady and dubs her Lady Perfect. He is the estranged brother of the Marquess of Mandeville, and he has come to his brother's ball at his mother's request, since he and his brother do not get on. It turns out that Lady Perfect is Lady Hero Batten and has literally just been announced as Griffin's soon-to-be sister-in-law. Griffin then proceeds to dance with her and tease her ruthlessly. 
Griffin and his brother Thomas are estranged, and everyone believes it is because Griffin seduced his brother's first wife, who then died in childbirth, and the parentage of the stillborn baby was also in question. Lady Hero finds this out after her cousin Batilda tells her that she should not be seen with Griffin, as he is known as Bad Company. Griffin is rarely in town, so the rumors have taken on a life of their own. Little does anyone know that Griffin is actually the reason that the reading coffers are no longer in dire straits. In fact, even his own brother Thomas does not know that Griffin has made the family fortune viable again by becoming one of the biggest gin distillers in London. And this is something that Hero's brother, the Duke of Wakefield, is strongly against and is doing everything in his formidable power to shut down the gin industry. After a night of checking in on his gin still, Griffin is making his way out of St. Giles when he spies Lady Hero entering her carriage in the middle of St. Giles. She has just been to visit the home for the unfortunate infants and foundling children, the home that she is patroness of. They are currently in temporary housing until their new home can be built, a sore spot for Lady Hero, who has taken her duties as patroness very seriously. But seeing her in St. Giles riles Griffin up, and so he blackmails Hero into spending more time with him. She'll have him escort her into St. Giles, or he will tell her brother and his brother that she regularly ventures there on her own. It turns out Lord Griffin is not what Hero supposes. He helps her find an architect to look over what has been happening with her building project that is woefully behind. He is also very protective, and an incident in the Pleasure Gardens when Thomas leaves Hero to speak to his ex-mistress... He instantly notices her and is furious at his brother for leaving her alone. He goes to get her, and in the heat of the moment, with the fireworks booming behind them, Griffin kisses Hero. The next day, Griffin accompanies Hero to his architect friend, who delivers some bad news about the progress of the home's rebuilding. Griffin surprises Hero and himself by offering to loan her money for the construction of the new home, since her fellow patroness is on the continent, and Hero does not have the necessary funds at her disposal at this exact moment. She turns him down, but is intrigued by his kindness. However, on their way home, Hero finds out about Griffin's gin operation, the root of all evil in London and something her brother, the Duke, as we mentioned before, is on a mission to put an end to. This is also something of a sore spot with Hero, too, because her brother believes that gin is at the root of their parents' untimely murder. So they part unhappily, but life goes on. After chatting with her sister, Phoebe, Hero comes up with a plan to get funds for the home. They will form a ladies' syndicate, a group of ladies who will all become patronesses of the home together. Still disturbed by the thought of Griffin involved with something as sordid as gin, Hero brings Griffin to the home to show him all the unfortunate children, many of whom are left without parents due to gin. However, Griffin is not swayed by this argument. In fact, he is convinced that it is the best way to meet his family's financial needs. So they get in a row, and it ends, of course, with Hero in his lap and him kissing her and undoing her bodice. We get an encounter, everybody, and it is a (sighs) handsy encounter beneath Griffin's trousers. (laughs) However, things are then very awkward when the carriage slows and Hero realizes that Griffin's brother, her fiancé, is supposed to come to lunch. 
And then Griffin is invited to lunch, making everything even more awkward. But things go well, and Hero vows to put distance between herself and Griffin. Of course, that plan is quickly unraveled when he and his sister arrive to take Hero and Phoebe shopping. The trip is uneventful, but Griffin learns of Hero's plan to create a lady syndicate. They bond over books written in Greek, and after an incident on the street with Phoebe, Griffin learns that Hero's sister is going blind. That night, with much to think about, Griffin's distillery is attacked by the competition. Before that attack, his partner Nick mentioned how his family used to spin, and that could be a lucrative legal venture should Griffin decide to turn away from gin completely. The morning after the attack on the still, Griffin is interrupted in his bath by none other than Lady Hero. She had heard of a gin still burning and had been so worried that she had come herself to see if Griffin was all right. Well, as you can imagine, this leads to an encounter. Griffin first goes down on Hero, and then they shortly go the rest of the way. Afterward, Hero rushes out. Griffin tells her to marry him instead of his brother, but Hero is not convinced that is wise. Sadly, she gets no reprieve because Griffin finds her at the ball she is attending that evening. First, they argue in the garden, and then they find their way to a room down the hall and make love against the door. You know... (laughs) Romance novel stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Then things get interesting because it turns out that Maximus, Hero's brother, the Duke, has learned that Griffin is distilling gin. When Hero finds that out from Maximus, she begs that he not touch Griffin. And that is how her brother learns that there is something more between them. The next day, Hero cannot stop thinking of Griffin. So she shows up at his door and we have another encounter. That night before, Griffin's partner Nick was killed. So when Hero shows up at his door, Griffin needs her. Quote, You and I, he panted, are special. This isn't like what everyone else does. It isn't like anything I've ever had before. We are unique together. That can't be, she said stubbornly, even as her slim fingers gripped his buttocks. It is, he said against her mouth. Why wouldn't she believe him? Why this denial of something nearly mystical? Listen to me. I will never have another lover like you. You will never have another lover like me. What we have should be cared for and cherished. The next day, Hero tells Thomas that she cannot marry him and admits the truth. She cannot marry him because she slept with his brother. He is furious and actually strikes her. It just so happens that Griffin had come to his brother's house to see his mother and comes in right after his brother strikes Hero. He sees this and goes berserk, attacking his brother until Hero gets him to stop. He tries to go to her to see if she's all right, but she runs. So she goes to her brother, who is bound to know what happened, and it turns out that her brother has decided to force her hand. He tells her if she does not want him to duel Griffin or have him arrested for distilling gin, she will have to marry Thomas. End of story. Griffin, trying to do the right thing, even goes to Hero's brother, where he is informed that the Duke has decided she will marry his brother, Thomas, on Sunday. Quote, We seem to be under a confusion of communication. I did not come here to ask for your sister's hand. I came here to tell you I will marry Hero with or without your permission, your grace. She has lain with me more than once. She may well be carrying my child. And if you think I'll give up either her or our babe, you have not done nearly enough research into my character or history. After that, Griffin goes to seek out his own brother, and they have a long overdue heart to heart. 
They rehash everything that has gone on. But Thomas is so preoccupied with who he thinks Griffin is that he just doesn't hear the words. Even after Griffin tells Thomas that he loves Hero, Thomas still refuses to back out of the marriage. That night, Griffin sneaks into Hero's room. He tells her he loves her and tries to get her to go against her brother's wishes. She asks him to again give up the still, but since Nick's death, Griffin needs to have his vengeance upon his enemies. The two make love twice, Griffin telling her how much he loves her, but Hero will not say she loves him in return. She wakes up the next morning, and Griffin is gone, leaving the earring she threw at him on their first meeting, an acknowledgement that he is not returning if she stays on her chosen path. Now, during this time, some more important conversations happen, but the most important thing that you need to know is this. Griffin's enemies attack, and Maximus's men have come to arrest Griffin at the same time. There's a battle, and Hero hears all this and makes her way there to make sure that her brother does not arrest him. So Hero arrives in the middle of all the chaos. And Griffin is not happy to see Hero endangering herself, but she decides to tell him that she loves him and she'll marry him, regardless of what her brother says. This is perfect timing because Griffin then gives the signal to blow up his still to help deliver a devastating blow to his enemies. So now he cannot be arrested for having a still. Also, there's rioting going on near the home. So the Duke of Wakefield turns his men to quell the riots at the home because Hero is passionate about the home and ta-da, happy ending. (laughs) And then six weeks later... (laughs) Hero and Griffin are married, and Thomas has married too. He married his former mistress, whom he actually loves, but did not think was a good fit for a marchioness, even though she was noble, but she was a widow and too old to be of childbearing age. So he actually decided to put his stuffiness behind in the name of love. And Thomas and Griffin again have an actual heart-to-heart. And Hero and Griffin live happily ever after. And we do have an epilogue, but all that it does is set up book number three, which we will get to soon. Woohoo! So exciting. Uh, So I want to talk about all of that and more. So shall we adjourn to the parlor? We shall. Today, we have a very short and sweet parlor. So we're going to remind you that if you'd like to find us and follow us on social media, we're on Instagram and Twitter at T as in Tom and as in Nancy Strumpets, Facebook slash T and Strumpets, and YouTube by searching our name. And if you're listening to us on YouTube, now is a great time to click that thumbs up and hit subscribe before you forget. Liking and commenting on our videos and subscribing to our channel is a really wonderful way to let us know that you like what we're doing. And if you'd like to know ahead of time what we're reading each month, subscribe to our email notifications via our website. If you subscribe, you'll be the first to know what we're reading each month. Plus, you'll get all sorts of extras, including exclusive content from each of the authors who join us on the podcast. Our website is romancepod.com, and there you can find episodes, more information about us, and other resources. So take a look. 
And finally, if you have a moment, we would so appreciate it if you would rate, review, and or tell a friend about our podcast. Because reviews on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or anywhere else you can review us, they really help other listeners find the podcast. And word of mouth is also one of the best ways that podcasts get found. So if you like what you're hearing, we'd love it if you help us spread the word. All right, Kelsey. So this was number two in our series, and you've already said you liked it a little bit more, or or at least a little bit more than the first one. Yes. What were your general thoughts about this one? Um, I actually liked it quite a bit more. Um, yes, I liked I liked Hero, and I liked Griffin, and I liked their interactions together. I thought that there was a bit of an honesty between them. Like it wasn't a lot of like. You know, I'm trying to think. It wasn't a lot of, like, him really trying to seduce her. It was a lot of that, like, Mm -hmm. I just can't help myself, like, you know. And I think on her part, too, you know, I like the fact that their meetings were more they were actually trying to find the other ones. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to contrive to be in the other person's path. It's like, you know, we get encounters because Hero keeps showing up at his house, you know, because she... You know, at first it's like, you know, and he really does say to have, he really does go with her into St. Giles because it's not a good place for a woman to go to on her own. And he's just like, I I want to accompany you just to make sure you're safe. It's not like him trying to weasel out more time. It was generally done in a, I want to keep you safe. And that's backed up with the rest of his personality. Mm-hmm. Like, he does that for his family. He's the protector. Like, that is his job. Like, he he is definitely, like, that his, is his personality. So it's not like all of a sudden he becomes weirdly protective of of her. He's just actually, like, he he shows that again and again in his personality that, like, he kind of gives up things for himself to better the people that he cares about um Mm -hmm. and so like so that so i agree like that that made sense um and felt like it was kind of a natural part of the character yeah and i think that both of them really felt like they always felt true to their character i don't think any of the either i do not think either one of them made decisions that felt incongruous with who they were as characters Mm -hmm. you know hero I'm going to read it as one of my favorite quotes because it's at the front and I just really liked it. So I'm not going to say it here. But, you know, (laughs) Hero has an outward facade that he dubs Lady Perfect. But she really shows him more of herself than she lets others see. Instead of just like the prim and proper lady, like she just can't help but be herself around him. And he never pretends to be anything other than he is. With her. Yeah. And so it's very much a true. There were a couple things that I didn't like. And Mm -hmm. I know sometimes I don't have I don't know how to do it on the Kindle like you do on your book where you can like search words or phrases. But oh, my God, she bit her lip. Like twelve hundred times, Zoe. Oh my gosh. I would love to, I would love to search, but my book is still charging as I can't. Um, I didn't catch that, but I remember him like biting her a lot. Like there was just like a lot of nips and bites. And so that's funny that you said bit her lip because I remember like 
in like all of the makeout scenes, he would like bite her her lip. And I was like, what is well, going on? Well, because he's what? always intrigued by her biting her lip. It's like something they say 10,000 times. And I was just, oh. and it was funny when I was reading the synopsis, like a lot of times what I do to make sure I get everything in order is I like skim the story and I just go through it really, really quickly. And I swear to God, I saw it jump out at me like 10 times. And I was like, are we still biting our lip here? That's so funny. That's so funny. I definitely did not notice it, but I um I really am glad you did because I'm rubbing off on you. <laughs> I know. Um there is another thing too that I've just noticed with Elizabeth Hoyt with her heroes in her stories. I noticed in the first one, the second one, and like spoiler, I did go ahead and read the third one because I wanted it ah! and we had to talk about it anyway. So I just read it already. No matter anyway. Um yes. but one thing that I don't always like is the men speak very vulgarly to the women they like. You know, mm-hmm. these are women they have feelings for and are passionate against. And sometimes they say things that are like too crude for you. Yeah. Like, but it's it's not like because sometimes you get it where they're like, they're being crude to be shocking. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, especially in a virgin in the rake, they're like, you're playing with fire. I'm gonna show you like yeah. the fire you're playing with. But in this one, it's like they're genuinely like trying to be like sexy and romantic, and it's not. And it's not it doesn't do it for it doesn't you. do it for me. In fact, it just comes out crude and vulgar. And I'm mm-hmm. like, why? Like you could say it and still be like rough and tough, but I don't yeah. know. I, I just they, I just don't that. like it as much in that heat of the moment. They tend to say things that I'm like, ugh. And then they have really like great romantic things that they say. And I'm like, this doesn't go together for me. Definitely. That's interesting. And I I actually so it's been a while since I read this book, probably 10 days, I think is when I finished it ago. Mm-hmm. So my my memory of it is is not as fresh. But what's interesting is that my memory before reading this book was really loving it and remembering for whatever reason, I remembered like the scene where they're in the boats at, you know, going to the gardens Mm -hmm. really vividly. Although what I remembered is not what's in this book. So I'm like, what am I remembering? (laughs) You're remembering another book that had boats. I know. (laughs) So funny. Um, but, uh, I, so I, And when we're talking about it, again, my memory is more of surface level. But as you start to 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 say things, I'm I am remembering more of my reread of this book, which I found myself a lot less enchanted with this book on Mm -hmm. this reread. I remember loving this book, but maybe it's just that I've looked at romance novels more critically now. Yeah. And yeah, I just felt a lot of parts of this book fell flat. Mm-hmm. And this book is really character driven. It's really, you know, it, it, it's less about the plot, actually, than about how Griffin and Hero are feeling. Yeah. And communicating with each other. The plot is Im- important, but it's not. But I think that the plot let the book down. And I'll explain why. So Griffin distills gin. It's illegal. Um, but he's doing it to save his family. And he got into it to save his family mm-hmm. um, because his dad died and they were pretty much destitute. And his brother, Thomas, admittedly did not have a head for funds. So Griffin dropped out of college and stepped in. His whole thing was he turned – they had a poor grain harvest yep. that wasn't going to make them any money. So he turned it into grain alcohol and made gin – because that actually could provide funds for the family. And so he's been doing that for years. 
And the, you know, the the conflict in this book um, uh, for the plot is that Hero, her brother Maximus, and Thomas are all against gin distilling. Mm-hmm. Thomas and Maximus are making, helping make these acts in parliament um, and they're like re- that, that, that's what they're staking their political careers on and Maximus really doesn't like gin because he believes as you said in the synopsis that um, uh, gin is one of the reasons that their parents were, were murdered so anyhow the point being though that you know Hero of course doesn't want Griffin distilling gin. And she tries to do the sob story. She tries to like show him the poor orphans of that have these gin things. And he goes, you know, his his defense of that is hero, someone's always gonna be making gin. Like it's not my fault, right? Like it's mm-hmm. not my fault if these people get the, you know, decide to have this thing that's bad for them. And there's a lot we can say about that argument. Yeah. Um, but I'm not even gonna go there. The thing is that when he gives it up. It like it it frustrates me because he he does have like strength in his conviction for distilling gin and he's saying like okay I see that this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life I do want to get out of it but I'm doing this for my family and Hero never never like understands that she like never gets to that point of being like. I see that this is bad and he says I see this is bad and yet they're saying like but we see the necessity of it because at the end of the day he's a fucking aristocrat right yeah. like he has money and like he lives at a different level and he's taking advantage of the poor by being a gin distiller but like I'm not even mad at him for doing that I'm mad at him for just all of a sudden being like yeah I'm, I'm good to go like yes yeah. I'm ready to let it go even though like he had conviction for continuing it for for his reasons um, which like don't even matter but then all of a sudden it's just like okay bye gin and then it's like heroes like yeah now I can love you because you don't do gin and it's like it just fell so flat for me at the end yeah. it just there was like this this lack of of a of a climax of it, of the, of like, because to me, it felt like the, the understanding was like knowing why Griffin was doing this, like why this drove him. And mm-hmm. it just never quite got there for me. And so then you had these two characters who the, kind of a reflection of that, of the plot was their relationship. Like I loved the little bit of hero that we got in book one. Mm-hmm. Like her promise of her conversation with Temperance, like she seemed so interesting and I was intrigued for her story. But then we get to her in this book and there's this like lady perfect facade and it's like really interesting to start to hear her internal dialogue of her being like, you know, I am the perfect Duke's daughter, but I'm not that inside. And But then yet- when she's faced with anything, like for me, I got frustrated with her. Yep. I feel like we're now just talking about the characters in general. <laughs> talking about hero there was one moment where you know she's basically said i don't want to marry thomas anymore i've slept with his brother like i can't do that to myself or to thomas like that's not fair i want to end this and then her brother's like well too bad so sad i'm going to arrest griffin and you know and she's like and even still like she won't tell griffin she loves him because she's like there's no point. Like, I must do what I need to do. And, you know, even with the threat, because it's not like she says, my brother will arrest you if I don't do this. You know, she's just like, and you don't see her saying in her heart of hearts, oh, 
you know, I'm sacrificing for him. He just doesn't know it. You know what I mean? It was like, no, she truly was like, no, I just need to like put on the Duke, the Duke daughter facade and just get over it. Like marriage is always supposed to be a contract anyway. Yeah. So yeah, like, I don't know. There's just, it's so weird because like, I don't know. I just, I feel like she has more to her than that. And that's what we started out seeing. And then we didn't go anywhere with it. It just fell flat. It totally did. She just like got caught up in learn, like uh, exploring sex and her sexuality, but she didn't grow emotionally, you know, where I wanted to see her grow more emotionally and instead she was like oh but griffin's doing the bad thing i'm going to help him do a good thing but she didn't like anyhow i think it she just had a lot of promise and i don't think that the characterization quite lived up to what i wanted for her agreed so i'm ready to rate her cool do you want to go first i'm gonna give her (sighs) i'm gonna give her a six I that was my guess that you would give her. I I'm gonna give her a five. I could take her or leave her. I mm-hmm. I was even tempted to give her a four because I was just like I was pretty disappointed in her. Mm. Like she she just she frustrated me um in ways that I just didn't remember. Um, but there, like you said, there were some moments in the beginning that were interesting and I didn't find her particularly offensive. So I think at the end of the day, what I said before, which is like Walking away from this book and having space from it, mm-hmm. I remember it more fondly than the actual experience of reading it was. So I guess take it or leave it. Yeah, I will say, I mean, like, she did play a part in me liking the book. You know, mm-hmm. one thing I did like about her is, like, she really was a fairly independent young miss. <laughs> like, you know, mm-hmm. she's yeah. not married. She's not spinster age. And yet she definitely just goes about and does things on her own and kind of just says F it and like doesn't let anyone tell her no. So I yeah. do. So like there are things about her I like. I think she could have just been much more. Yes, I concur. Let's talk about Griffin. <laughs> Griffin. So I know we have the issue of the character development between the still and the giving it up very quickly and having it not be a big thing. You know, mm-hmm. I thought that you're right. It kind of came up really fast and it almost felt like at the end, him blowing up the gin distillery was kind of like a cop out of having to have that emotional realization for him mm-hmm. because he didn't yep. actually blow it up in the sense that like he blew it up for her. It's like he blew it up because he's like, I need to get rid of these enemies off my back. And the only way Mm -hmm. I can do that is by delivering them a devastating blow. But now I'm willing to sacrifice the gin still, but I still can't sacrifice it without like wreaking vengeance upon my enemies. Yeah. I just, I mean, and that was fine. It was just, it just seemed like, you know, basically his life's work up to this point. Like before that, he was just a carefree lad and then he had a gin still. And I get, I don't know. I just, there were other parts of his, him that I didn't like. I think when you talk about the vulgarity and just kind of like how kind of rough and crude he was, I think to me, it was like, I have some notes of like, I didn't. I didn't like their encounters. I felt like mm-hmm. they, you know, it was very um 
I don't know, maybe it's a little bit of like a, a personal preference thing, but I felt like it was very, you know, alpha. Yeah, um, I have a line from you. Dom sub, yeah. I'm going to read it to you right now because I literally took a note and I said, bit much. But it was the same thing with these encounters, how like they didn't start out of like a stark need. It was like he definitely like took over and yes, she was interested in it. So, you know, like. Yeah, she was always consenting. And she was always consenting towards it. Like there was no like, you know, I'm going to put pressure on you and then you're going to consent. It was very much like she consented immediately to it. But this line in, she darted then, a heart flushed from cover, and tried to leap around him. He caught her by the waist and flung her up against the closed door. Then he bent his head and looked into her brilliant diamond gray eyes. What will it be, madam? Yeah, and there was a couple, that's exactly, as a perfect way. It, there, There's something thrilling about that, and I totally, like, I get the, you know, the there are other times in romance novels where I find that really awesome and sexy and, you know, exciting, but it just didn't work for me in this one because I think that that's how their dynamic was, like, all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, Hero was constantly in that, like, oh no, like, I can't believe I'm doing this kind of attitude of like, I want this so much, but I can't, but I want this so much, but I can't. And he was like, you will have me or you will not, or you will have me or you will. And it was just like, ugh, guys, I, I agree a bit much. And there were times when I wrote, like in their scenes that I felt like he was almost weaponizing their love or their sex, you know, yeah. like, because like, there's this line where, where I wrote this afterwards, he says like, you know, that they're, they're, she's trying to say, we're like, we can't do this anymore. And he's like saying, do you love me hero? His pale green eyes were full of torment. Do you love me? Like I love you. Um, cause he's like trying to make her admit the love and, mm-hmm. You know, and then they're continuing on and having sex, even though she's not saying she loves him. And I'm just like, I feel like he's weaponizing sex in that moment to like get her to admit her love. He's putting her in a vulnerable state to then, you know, get what he wants. Yeah. And it's all consensual. Like there's never anything that didn't feel consensual. But it just, I did not enjoy their dynamic and I didn't enjoy. Like, I, I didn't yeah. dislike it, but I was just kind of like, oh, come on. Yeah, no. But we're I, and we're I, better than this. <laughs> and I agree with that. And I think it's hard, too, because in general, I actually, like, reading about Griffin the character, I really like Griffin the character. Yes. Like, he's actually yes. super great. Like, and when um, hero sister Phoebe falls down, he's so concerned. And he goes, he's like, why have you not consulted a specialist? She needs better glasses. Clearly, she didn't see that step. And, you know, he's so concerned for Phoebe in that moment. Like, he's actually a genuinely kind, caring individual who looks after those he loves. And even Phoebe's sister, knowing how much she loves her, he's like, what's happening here, you know? And so it's so hard because he, as the character, is actually quite lovely. Yes. But then, like, in the heat of the moment, he, like, becomes this, like – rugged sea captain like old school hero and i don't like that as much (laughs) i don't yeah it's like when they're apart you're like oh i can see how these two people are good for each other but then when they're together they're actually like not that good for each other (laughs) like they they don't bring out the best in each other but whatever they they work they had passion and fire and something whatever so we have to rate griffin yes 
Um, I'm going to go first. I'm also going to rate him a five. I'm going to take him or leave him because I love, I love who he is on the page, like without hero. And then when he and hero are interacting, I just, um, it just falls flat for me. So I'm going to take him or leave him. I'm going to give him a 6.5 actually. Okay. Fair enough. Because I like him more than I like hero. (laughs) I thought there was much more. I thought he was just much more dynamic through all of it. Like he felt very much like a real person. And like, yes, their lovemaking scenes and their encounters weren't always to be my desire. Like I really didn't like when he's like, touch me hero in their first encounter. And he literally like puts her hands in his pants and is like, get me off, you know? And I was kind of, I didn't like that very much. But I feel like if I, ha- I took – if I'm reading it just as characters, if I took all the encounters out of it, I like Griffin more than I like Hero. And I don't mm-hmm. dislike either of them. And I – and they both tip into the like category for me Good. versus the take it or leave it. So that's where I'm going to leave that. Yeah. It's it's interesting because like, like you said with that first encounter, I think – and I think this with so many romance books. I think that like – all of the things that happen in this book, all of the encounters, none of them are like things that I would never want to read. But just putting them all together with everything else that happened in this book, they just didn't quite work, you know? Like, yeah. whereas like in another book, in another place with two other characters, that same scene might be super steamy. Agreed. So it's just interesting. See, that's the thing is it's if I look at those encounters as a whole, like those char- the characters in this book don't feel like they're having those encounters. I I agree. And in fact, normally we do our favorite quote next, but we've kind of been talking about the encounters in relation to these characters because I feel like there were so many of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there were so many of them. It it drove their their relationship. Yes. A lot of their relationship was that sexual chemistry between the two of them. And it wasn't like the sexual chemist. It wasn't unrealized sexual chemistry. It was like the actual sexual chemistry of coming together. Yeah. So. We've kind of been alluding to it, but steaminess rating. So there were seven encounters, right? Seven encounters. And let me tell you, they were all very detailed. There were details in there I didn't even need. <laughs> yes. So I, for me, my tea had gone cold as far as steaminess rating. Like it just, I just didn't, it didn't. I kept taking, I wish it, had it been was warmer. like, it kept being like the wrong sip. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like, I knew what was in my cup. And I was okay with what was in my cup, but when I tasted it, it just was off. Yeah, I think that's a much better description. It just didn't, it just wasn't quite, it was as if like you grabbed the tea for the person sitting next to you and you just were surprised by it because it wasn't like what you were expecting. Mm -hmm. I'm totally with you. Or it's like when it's like not strong enough or you get the milk ratio off, it's like, (laughs) you know, it just wasn't right. But as far as quotes go. Yes. I've got two. I would say one is more, I just kind of find it funny, and I just think it's very, I should have put it in the synopsis, but I wasn't doing a lot of quotes in the synopsis. Um, But the first one is, like I said, is when I talk about Hero, I said I was going to say it, so I'm going to say it. So, perfect. Quote, Hero suppressed a small sigh and inhaled and exhaled slowly, softly, and imagined she was a statue. It was an old trick to get through events such as these. She was a hollow, perfect facade of a duke's daughter. Really, she, the woman within, didn't have to be here at all. I had that one. I was thinking about using that one. I'm so glad you used it because that 
is where I got so excited as I started reading the book. And mm-hmm. I was like, yes. Yeah. Now we get to find well, out see, about hero. Exactly. Like I was so excited reading that line. And that's like page 16 on my thing. Like it's very early on. Yes. Yes. It's And it's beautiful and it's good. And it's so vivid. It's mm-hmm. so vivid. I love it. And then my next one, which is the whole, this is where heroes contrast with everything that we see is Griffin has said, marry me to her. And she says, oh, dear Lord. She turned to face him. Her eyes skipped over his nude body. And then she held her gaze firmly above his waist. Have you not listened to a word I've said these last days? Marriage is a contract, a bargain between families, a pact for the future, solemnly thought out and sincerely entered into. It isn't something one just jumps into on a whim. He shook his head. This isn't a whim. Then why didn't you ask me before you bedded me? He stared at her, tempted to answer that he'd been thinking with the smaller of his two heads before he bedded her. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah, there were some cute moments like that, too, where you know, the the lighthearted part of their personalities kind of got to be injected into the the narrative. Yeah. But uh like that one very much. So I have one where I just kind of liked the imagery of it. And it's when they're in the gardens and Griffins come to find her and they they kiss and um the fireworks are overhead. So it says she gasped, winded, unable to catch her breath. She'd never thought herself a creature of physical want, had never experienced this longing before with any other man. It was as if she were the dormant black powder and he a flame that set her alight. Suddenly, everything was vivid, clear, and burning. The very night sky rejoiced as if to celebrate her awakening. That's a great line. That's a great line. I mean, it's... And that this is also like this evolution of hero where she she had never thought herself a creature of physical want. Like mm-hmm. she had never known she could feel this way. She was just the facade, right? Yeah. And so like this is this next step in her evolution. And I I love reading about it. Again, it just kind of after this, it feels like she doesn't know what to do with herself. Yeah. So, I think I would mm-hmm. have liked to see based on that line of like never knew she was a creature of physical want. And then – you know, when we see those encounters further on, like we said, she fully consents, like, you know, she consents to all of them, but I would have liked to see her initiate mm-hmm. at some yeah. point, you know, at some you point. know, where she-, she comes to his house, but then she's like, oh, whatever am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, she comes to his house, but she's not there for sex, you know. Maybe she, she is. is. Like, she is. But she's more – she's like, I came out of concern for you, you know? But mm-hmm. instead of being like, oh, like, you know, take me now or like, you know, running into his arms and kissing him. She's just like, oh, I just needed to make sure you were okay. It's like, no. Yeah. Take charge, yeah. lady. Take charge. I agree. Um, well, so we – in our last episode, you know, we said with the feminist recap, I, it's – it's still stumbling here in episode 93 but you know i want i was i was thinking we could try to bring things that that we thought you know empowered us or things that didn't empower us and i feel like this book was kind of in the middle because for me i just felt again we've already sort of talked about it like the encounters were not like empowering 
to me. Not that everything has to be empowering. And like Dom sub stuff is great and wonderful. And like it can be empowering to read about. Um, but I don't think this was that. And I just it fell flat for me. And I, I I think, you know, my comment before about how he kind of weaponized sex, like, mm-hmm. you know, and he didn't like when that's a bit of a strong term for it, but it felt like he was using sex and their sexual attraction as a way to uh, like win her forever. Yeah, I get that. And yeah, I don't know. I just it this book was not particularly empowering to me, nor do I think that it was, you know, offensive. No, it wasn't offensive. I would say it leaned supporter. Taking all the sexual components aside, I think that – and one thing about these books is they jump from different characters' perspectives. So we mm-hmm. do get a lot of silence in this and we do, like, see more of what's happening in the home. And I will say that this book, even though we did get a lot from Griffin's perspective and I feel like he was very much, like, a solid voice in this book, I felt like it was really told from women's points of view – we see, yeah. you know, the we see the mistress, you know, standing firm against Thomas and being like, mm. I wasn't going to I'm not going to be your mistress if you're marrying somebody else. We see cousin Bathilda trying to support Hero in her decisions, like even against her brother. She's not like the, you know, the old matronly cousin who has taken care of them doesn't just side with her brother. We see Phoebe's love of her sister. We see Griffin's love of his sister. You know, and the support and doing things because he's like, oh, I need to take care of Meg's season next year. And I need, you know, and the influence of his mother in his life and how she is a very supportive person and he does love her. And you see that and he takes her words to heart. So I will say there was like leaning support just because it was so And the ladies syndicate. And the ladies syndicate was so great because they're like, no, we're Mm -hmm. not going to allow you to donate because men want to take over. It's just ladies. That's, that's really great points. I think that the, I think that like this book is written to be, you know, empowering Mm -hmm. um and and i think that there's a lot of great themes as you have pointed out um to support that all right so let's talk about this one final book rating for this book um as i said at the beginning i remember this book a lot more fondly than i felt about it this time and even kind of trying to bring up my thoughts about it this time after only reading it 10 days ago. It was like, oh yeah, I had to dig deeply. For whatever reason, it still like floats to the surface as as pleasant. Yeah. But I but I think I'm gonna rate it a five. I'll take or leave this book. I feel actually a little bit ambivalent about it at this point. I will say it's a six. Mm-hmm. Only because if you told me I had to read it again, I wouldn't go, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> if you told me I had to read number one again, I'd be like, absolutely not. Sorry. That's yeah, a no-go. No, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. Um, it just isn't – it's not the book for me. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, this one, I'd be like, I could read it again. Not in the sense that I would yeah. love to read again. It's not one I would choose to read again. But should I have to, I'd be like, yeah, I could read it again. <laughs> 
Agreed. Totally agreed. Um, I, I can see something happening in my life where I reread this series and I start at number two, you know? Yeah, I would say that's fine. Honestly, I feel like you could start at number two and you wouldn't miss much. <laughs> yeah, the fir- yeah, I have such fond memories of of other books in the series too that are coming up. Like I, I have fond memories of Silence's book, although I'm about to read it, and so we'll see if my memories are as are are correct this time. Uh, Phoebe's book, I remember really loving uh, her story. I am excited to read that one. Uh, I don't great. know what's yeah. going to happen with that one. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to the mis- Should I give you a spoiler on the trope for that book? No. No spoilers. No? Okay. no spoilers. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. There's a lot of these books that I'm there's a lot of good characterizations in this book and characters in this series. And I do find myself uh. intrigued by them and wanting to continue just because there is she for me. So far, Elizabeth Hoyt is very good at the mysterious. Mm -hmm. Like she gives you snippets and little like breadcrumbs and it makes you want to continue. So I would say for me, that is what's kind of pulling me along in the series. It's like, I need to know. Yes. And there's so many good ones. Like, I mean, Maximus's book, I don't really remember his. I can't remember his heroine. But there's there's a couple of dukes you haven't even met yet. Oh, wow. <laughs> there's uh, there's uh, Godric St. John and Megs, who we met Megs in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, his uh, uh, Griffin's sister. And, you know, Winter. Oh, my goodness. Winter. I can't wait for Winter's book. It's literally such a great book. Okay. So anyhow. Lots of excitement uh, for this whole series, and we will keep reading it here on the podcast. Excellent. Well, as I alluded, we are reading Silence's book in November, but our next episode is not November. So, Kelsey, what are we reading next time? Next time, we are reading Highland Haunting by Lily Maxton. Yes. A short, quaint novella that takes place in the Highlands. (laughs) Mm-hmm. If the title was not a clue. <laughs> yeah. This is a male male novella too and um a little bit spooky. <laughs> yes. So yeah, it is the spooky season, so we had to have a, a spooky book in there. We tried to throw at least one at you. <laughs> yeah, and Halloween wasn't actually a thing in the Regency, but no. we're going to talk about that in our next episode. That's fine. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm excited to share that book with our listeners. So thank you all for listening. And please join us next time as we read Highland Haunting by Lily Maxton. And may all your ever afters end happily. 